you, worship team. 2023. Are you used to that yet? I'm not. So I'm going to give you a different year. 1969. What do you remember about it? Or what did you learn in school about it? Anybody? Man on the moon, single biggest thing that uh, polls say people remember about 1969. Amazing. Anything else? Woodstock. Talk to my wife later about how she was locked in her house in New York State. So no, just kidding. Um, yeah, she was 14 back then. So, you know, I think her mother feared the worst that wasn't about to happen. Anything else? I'm sorry you put it that way. Somebody was married. That's much better. Hallelujah. Somebody graduated. Might not be known on the uh, register of most significant American events, but in your life, absolutely. And Vietnam continued. Well, I want to go back to what was put in the proper way at the first service when I asked the question, and that was 1969. I was 14. It was the last summer before I had even a part-time job. And in mid-August, people like myself living in northern Illinois had our hopes sky high that for the first time since 1908, the Chicago Cubs might win a World <laughs> Series. And yet those dastardly Mets, <laughs> not so amazing. If you want to know the statistics, I've tried not to memorize these. They're too depressing. Mid-August, the Cubs had a nine-and-a-half game lead over the Mets, only to lose 17 of their last 25 games while the Mets went on a tear and won the division title by eight games. It was the most extreme of several subsequent collapses by the Cubs that earned them the title. This is not my creation. Lovable losers. I used to, when people asked for a little biography that was more interesting than the boring one they put on the seminary website, I used to end it with the sentence, um, Craig faithfully roots for Colorado sports teams, but his lifelong dream, I later changed that word to fantasy, it seemed, it seemed less, it seemed more appropriate, was to see the Cubs win a World Series in his lifetime. 
I am so glad that after 2016, I had to change that wording. Of course, if anybody expected a dynasty, it hasn't happened. I don't know whether uh, lovable losers will get recycled someday or not. But I've often thought that the summer of 69 was defining. Oh, I loved watching the moon landing. I remember watching it live. It was spectacular. I wasn't quite old enough to really appreciate all of the dynamics of Vietnam and Woodstock and civil rights marches and the Red Guard in Germany and uh, other events, but um, I did have a transistor radio. And on the games that weren't broadcast on the ABC affiliate in the Quad Cities in Illinois from WGN in Chicago, I could at least listen on the radio to the Cubs games. And I, I don't know if, if uh, any of you have had a lot of experience at some point in your life of listening to games of any kind on the radio, but it's not like watching them. You've got nothing that helps you anticipate what's going to come next. You, you, you don't see the guy swing the bat and miss until the announcer says something. And after so many games when we lost, the only defense mechanism I could create to prepare myself for the next game I listened to or watched was to always assume the worst. Cubs are up. Nobody's going to get on base. Mets game, everybody's going to hit a home run. <laughs> and, and then I could only be pleasantly surprised. <laughs> there are times, even today, there's been a certain football team this fall <laughs> where... I've, I've found myself falling back on that same defense mechanism again. <laughs> and sports aside, I suspect I'm not the only one who uh, has sometimes felt what psychologists call the imposter syndrome. You're asked to do something, you're expected to do something, you're given a responsibility, maybe even a job, and you're just not sure you're qualified. Or if you have the credentials, you're not sure you'll be able to pull it off, at least to the standards you've set for yourself or maybe those of others, whichever are highest. And you find yourself thinking, I'm just gonna have to settle with getting by and anything better than that will be a happy surprise. There is a character in the Old Testament, well-known, often spoken about, 
King David. And that's how we often refer to him, as if King were his first name. <laughs> what was he like growing up? What was his psyche like when he was 14? No idea. And most attempts to read something in would probably be reading something in. <laughs> but there is a story, 1 Samuel chapter 16, when Samuel is called by God to anoint David king that gives us at least one snapshot at one moment in time of something that by the cultural standards of the day does everything wrong. 1 Samuel 16, 1 to 13, we'll have the words on the screen, but I also like to invite people to read along if you have a Bible that gives you more context. Beginning at verse one, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul <clears throat> since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint the one for me that I indicate. So Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked him, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Then Shammah passed by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest. Jesse answered, he's tending the sheep. 
Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. <laughs> he went home. The end. Five minutes commercials, next show. What kind of story is this? There is no known record inside the Bible or outside of it in the ancient Near East of an anointing remotely like this. And literary people sometimes identify David in this particular account not as the hero, but as an anti-hero. An anti-hero is not a villain. It's not a, a, an opponent. An anti-hero is somebody who is a hero, but in all the unexpected and even wrong ways. Why do people say that? Why might we be able to take the title that got applied to the Cubs and apply it, at least at this one moment, not later, to young David? A lovable loser? Well, the story begins by doing exactly what you don't want to do if you want to stay alive. Either Samuel or David. Oh, it's true, if we read backwards, we discover that God has told Samuel to say to Saul, and he's done so publicly on another occasion, at another time, <coughs> that the kingdom will not forever remain in either his hands or his family's hands because of Saul's disobedience. But Saul will still be king for a number of years. So why anoint his successor now in a context where that virtually guarantees he becomes Saul's opponent? It's not surprising that Samuel reacts the way he does at the beginning of verse 2. How can I go? How can I do this? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Bethlehem is five miles south of Jerusalem. News traveled. That's not that far. Even in the ancient world, most people could walk it in a couple of hours. This is dangerous stuff. Why on earth would God command this to be done? Well, the Lord tries to alleviate Samuel's fears a little bit by saying... Um, just go and, and say you're there to make sacrifice. Well, okay, but I mean, 
prophets didn't just randomly go around the country making sacrifices. There has to be reason. Well, maybe this has something to do with somebody's sin, but the tabernacle was standing. You were supposed to deal with sins in a, a proper way. Maybe there was some unsolved crime. Maybe there was a, an unconvicted murderer. Maybe somebody had been killed and nobody knew who did it. And this could have been one of the ways to cleanse the land and to collectively forgive the sins of the community since they had not been able to find the person and bring him to justice. But That doesn't make the local elders feel that much better. Oh great, we got a killer on the loose. Maybe he's a serial killer. What's the sacrifice about? Invite Jesse to the sacrifice. Well, he apparently wasn't one of the elders. May have been a prominent man in town. We find out his Family comes as well. What's this about? It's going to raise questions at the very least. Special sacrifice, incognito. Bethlehem's elders tremble. Do you come in peace? Samuel reassures them, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Oh, well, great. That helps a lot. Why are you doing it? <laughs> he never says. Yet. And so we get what seems to be described as a secret party. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons, invited them to the sacrifice. Sacrifice was a time of eating. Sometimes you could eat certain parts of the meat of the animal that was sacrificed, or bread or grain offering. It, it involves the leading citizens of the community. Something important is going on, but it's not in some big hall or courtyard, people are doing it as quietly as possible. A secret, quiet, sedate party. Isn't that an oxymoron? Aren't parties supposed to be raucous and public and celebratory? Everything is backwards in this story. And now it's time for the beauty pageant. <laughs> or the handsome pageant, whatever you call it, when it's with men. <laughs> and Eliab comes. Apparently he was tall, dark, and handsome, kind of like uh, Saul had been. And maybe Samuel's thinking, shoo, okay, we can't have Saul or his family, but at least we're going to get somebody who's as impressive looking as Saul was. And Maybe he'll be godlier. That, that'd be a great combination. 
But Samuel says, the Lord has not chosen him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We all know that. Maybe we all say we believe it. How often do we follow it? People who study these kinds of things say that if you are taller rather than shorter, you have a much better chance at getting a leadership job in the secular world. And I would be surprised if it was any different in the Christian world. If you're charismatic, small c, if you're good looking, if, if you look like um, Mr. America or your favorite Marvel superhero, you're going to get more chances in life. You're going to get more accolades. And it's not just non-Christians who sometimes act that way. Only God knows what we're thinking, what we're feeling, what our intentions are. How often when somebody does something we don't like, we immediately impute to them the worst of intentions, which we can't possibly know. Or when we like somebody and they do something we like, we resist any possible suggestion that maybe they did it with mixed motives. Fortunately, God always gets those judgments right. Hallelujah. So we should let him make those judgments. It's not just Eliab. It's Abinadab. It's Shammah. It's a seven-fold complete group of David's sons. It's a parade of models. And none of them is accepted. Samuel has got to be absolutely baffled by this time. This is before the British monarchy and allowing daughters to reign. This is the era of big families. Is there anybody else? You hiding somebody in a closet? You got Harry Potter under the staircase? What's going on here? Ah, well, you know the kids out in the field. Who? Bring the kid in. The smallest and youngest of the sons is tending the sheep. Well, we're not supposed to be thinking of a six-year-old. We don't know his age at this point, but he's probably at least late teens. We know from what he says in some of his psalms that he, on at least one occasion, killed a lion and killed a bear in protecting his flocks. We know about his exploits because we've read ahead what's going to happen later 
But he's no Eliab, he's no Abinadab, he's no Shammah. He's tending the sheep. He drew the shortest straw as the shortest kid. And Samuel says, send for him. We won't even sit down to formally start this banquet until he shows up. I said it before, but I'll say it again. This is backwards. This is not what anybody culturally expected. <laughs> I don't know what to call David based on verse 12. The translations are all over the map. Literally, he was ruddy. He was red-cheeked. I think of those pictures of kids in England, some of whom visited us recently. <laughs> he had beautiful eyes. It's not usually what you compliment boys on, but whatever. And good in looking. Was he one of those people we sometimes call a, a pretty boy? Was, was he somebody who in today's world would be more likely to be in a boy's band than on the football or wrestling teams? Is this Justin Bieber at age 16? <laughs> and yet, the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Okay, great. We'll figure this out somehow. Let's see what's going to happen. <laughs> Nothing. And they all go home. Oh, I know, there are more chapters to come, but we have to have at least five minutes of commercials. And then it's 9 o'clock and time for the next show to come on. David may well, at this point in time, fit the description of a lovable loser. At least in the eyes of the people around him. But not in God's eyes. He will be the one who will defeat Goliath. He will be the one to play his musical lyre and soothe Saul when he becomes demonized. But it's a long period of time before he'll occupy the throne and <laughs> he'll be on the run for most of that and at one point even have to feign that he's mad or insane before a Philistine king. He may be a not-so-lovable loser at that point. But like the fans who say at halftime when the favorite team is way down, hey, we got them right where we want them. God does have David right where he wants him. Despite all of the coming adversity, he is going to be the godliest king Israel will ever have, despite 
some serious glitches and flaws along the way. Does this say anything to us in the 21st century? Roughly 3,000 years after these events? I suspect some of you feel in some aspect of life like a loser. I suspect most of us have felt that way at some point in our lives. Some of you, like me, count up the years and say, um, another new year. <laughs> Wonder what's going to deteriorate in my body this year. <laughs> Some of you are no longer earning the money you once did. And you're saying, hmm, wonder what I'll have to give up because I can't afford it this year. Some of you are in the prime of life and doing great, but gosh, when that happens, people just keep piling the work on you. And you don't feel able to keep up with it all. Some of you are in school someplace and Maybe not the top student, maybe not the best athlete, maybe not the best looking person by our culture's standards. And that's tough. I am very grateful that many of you are people who love the losers of our world, whether it's through North Littleton Promise or Love, Inc. or some other formal ministry or just loving your kids, your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews, the people in your neighborhood who are not the ones everyone naturally gravitates toward. Jesus was the descendant of King David, who if any human being ever knew what it was like to be a loser and to seemingly have lost whatever love he had from his followers during his life, it was he who died in agony on the cross and had to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David's life eventually turned around. And we're grateful for knowing that part of the story. For the most part, David became a lovable winner. <laughs> oh yeah, then there's that Bathsheba bit. Uriah. But hey, Psalm 51. <laughs> Magnificent confession of heartfelt repentance that has helped God's people throughout the centuries. And none of us ever come close to perfection in this life, but one day we, like David, will get it right all the time. Meanwhile, people reject us. 
just like they rejected Jesus. Some of you have experienced far more persecution for your faith than, than I ever have. Some of you have been in parts of the world where that comes more commonly. Some of you have been in neighborhoods or parts of American cities where that comes more commonly. The summer I turned 15, I started high school, three-year high school, and discovered through my best friend who invited me to come to club meetings, an organization called Campus Life, part of Youth for Christ. And by the spring of 1971, I had trusted in Christ and was amazed that here was a group of 15, 16, and 17-year-old kids who genuinely cared about me, notwithstanding that I didn't have what was considered good looks, I, didn't, I wasn't a talented athlete. Worse still, I was a pretty good student, and that doesn't make you popular among that crowd. Some of you will remember the word egghead. Now we say nerd or geek, but back then it was an egghead, and I heard that a lot. I remember one time after PE class, which was probably the worst bullying I had ever received, that I went home, and as I was pouring my heart out to my dad, he said, <clears throat> Greg, I'm going to tell you two things. The first one is that the second thing I tell you isn't going to make you feel any better right now. <laughs> but it's true. And the second thing is, he was a teacher at the high school I went to. He had inside scoops on things. He said, this, this kid probably isn't even going to be here at the end of the semester. You may never see him again. You may never hear anything about him again, even in the internet world I never have. And I know that's not any consolation today or going back to school tomorrow, but in the whole span of your life, this is going to be a pretty trivial incident. And he was right on both counts. It was no consolation at all. <laughs> And a semester later, I could say, oh, that's what you were talking about. You had the long-term picture in mind. I also learned a lesson at that time that <laughs> not all those cool kids were really all that cool. Those who seemed so put together were often covering up for ways in which they were deeply insecure or had horrible home lives or did not have access to resources that I did or did have access to wealth that I didn't have, but it didn't make them happy. Theologically, I learned according to God's perfect, holy, infinitely high and demanding standard, we are all losers. And yet he still loves us. We are lovable losers. I remember years ago, a, a Christian comedian doing a, a skit 
it was hilarious. It was around the refrain that was a parody from a book that was popular in those days. And what he kept saying after he'd tell story after story is, I'm not okay and you're not okay. But that's okay. God loves us anyway. I think we see some of that in 1 Samuel 16. And in this one snapshot at one moment in the life of David. And because we know the rest of the story, in him we can all become lovable winners. Partially now is your cup half empty or half full? Let's focus on the half full. And perfectly in the life to come. So, I haven't done New Year's resolutions for a while. Never kept them anyway. Why lie then? The closest thing I'm going to come to on this year is to say, I want to try just a little bit more than I've succeeded thus far to banish the 1969 Cubs psyche from my life. Will you banish whatever your version of that psyche is that makes you think of yourself at best as a lovable loser and at worst as a not very lovable loser and recognize it in Christ? Not because of what we do or are. We are lovable winners. Let's pray together. Father, Help us internalize these truths just a little bit more this year than we've done in the past. We don't know what new challenges will come our way to make it harder to see ourselves as you see us. Or maybe things will go better than they have in the last few years given the events of the world, that's not setting the bar that high. But whatever happens, help us to see ourselves as you saw David, as you saw every one of your children, as you see all of us, however old as children we might be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.